0: While everybody is getting settled, Um, starting Thursday night, Jim Myers will be teaching while I am on a busman's holiday to Africa, and I will be teaching over the weekend at a church south of uh, Johannesburg, and then I'll be flying on Monday morning up to Livingston in Zambia and teaching that night for two or three hours. And then uh, after that, it'll be vacation. So um, Jim will be teaching while I'm gone. Also coming up, uh, the last weekend of September, first weekend of October, uh, there's going to be a group. They've got a number of people who signed up to go out to the Fort Bend County Fair and get trained in evangelism and do some evangelism. So if you're interested, uh, sign up. That's going to be a uh uh, a good way to uh, get some training in evangelism. And then the Israel tours planned for next June, June 6th to nineteen. If you're interested, please send an email to staff at org. Right now we have about 34, 35 people on the list of people who are really interested in getting information and very interested in going. And uh, so I'm excited about that because we haven't had that much interest uh, this early ever. So... Um, uh, we've had that much interest, maybe six months out, but and we one time had a trip of about thirty six or thirty seven but uh, so th- that is very encouraging and so we're still putting things together so we don't have all the details yet. Uh, so just be a little patient and um, I'm not going to work on it for the next two weeks, so it's not going to get any fa- come in any faster either because I'm going to be on vacation. All right, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and uh, then I will open in prayer, and one prayer request, uh, I uh, we pray for Herman Maddox, he is um, seriously ill, uh, I don't want to go into a lot of details, but it looks like the Lord may be taking him home soon, and so pray for him, pray for his wife Judith, pray for the church the congregation there, and um, uh, It's just in the Lord's hands, whatever he will do and whatever his plan is, but we know that his plan is perfect, and so whatever happens will be uh, perfect timing. So let's uh, have a few moments of silent prayer, and then uh, I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we do come before your throne of grace. We know that in times when there is serious, severe illness and there's the great possibility that you're going to take a believer home, we know that precious in your sight is the death of your saints. And, Father, we pray your comfort for uh, through your word for Judith, for those in the, uh, Herman's congregation, and we just pray that you would... Uh, Take him, not let him suffer, that the doctors would be wise in how they they handle his case, and Father, we pray that you would uh, continue that ministry that he 's been so faithful uh, over the over the last decades, and there's some good men there who are who are teaching also Father, we pray too for uh, others in this congregation who are still grieving the loss of loved ones and family members, we pray especially for the language family and pray for them as you comfort them and uh, comfort Marguerite's husband and that this would be a great opportunity as a witness and testimony for those uh, who are close to them. Father, we pray for this nation. We pray that you might uh, turn things around and that the only thing that will really do that is for people individuals to turn back to you that's the only long-term solution short-term solutions involve voting and we need to be out and take care of our responsibility in those areas and it's important to be informed but father we pray for uh, your intervention in preventing or minimizing the corruption that is out there and we know that that is it is very very extremely severe Father, we pray for us that we might rejoice in the fact that we know you're in control, that all things work together for good to those who love you and to those called according to your purpose. And, Father, that we can have a perfect peace and stability no matter what happens around us. And so, Father, we pray that we might be able to demonstrate that in our thinking and in our living, that those around us will perceive a difference and perhaps will have opportunities to witness. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Yesterday I had an interesting lunch. Some of you know the man that I, um, that I had lunch with, and I'm not going to mention his name. You'll probably figure it out, but because of some things I'm going to say, I don't want to mention his name. But he is a uh, retired uh, M- Israeli ambassador. At one time he was consul general here in Houston in the late 80s. So think about what the political situation was in America in the late 80s. Ronald Reagan was president. Um, we had a – and um, uh, during part of that time, George Herbert Walker Bush was president during part of that time. Uh, there was a lot going on in Texas at that time. And then he went from this post – with the uh, Israeli Foreign Service to Washington, D.C., where he was not the ambassador, but he was uh, uh, elevated to the rank of ambassador and served in uh, various capacities there. So he had a ringside seat as to a lot of things that were going on in Washington, D.C. and in um, uh, circles of government, and he continued to be hes very well-informed and he continues to be involved and so he was in Houston and as is usual he and I get together for for breakfast or lunch and we had lunch together yesterday i was pleased he uh, had not been here 3 years because of covid and i got a text out of the blue i got a call from some washington dc number i figured it was somebody else wanting me to vote for something i didn't so i ignored it but then i was surprised later on to see there was a voice message from that number and uh, so we were able to get together yesterday, and he will be available, and he'll be one. I usually have two or three special speakers address the um, uh, group that is in Israel on the tour, and so he is going to be one of those who will speak to our group, and that's that's a great, uh, great privilege. He usually has a price tag on his Honorarium that is beyond our capacity, and he always graciously just comes because of our friendship. And so that was good. But he, as we sat down and we started to eat lunch, he, he turned to me and he said, um, I am very concerned about what's happening in the United States. What do you think is going to happen? and i replied well i'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet and i left my crystal ball at home but it doesn't look good he said i am much more concerned about the uh future of the united states than i am the future of israel now he does, he is conservative and he is um he is fairly orthodox but he doesn't have the understanding of the role of of Israel in history quite the same that we do. But he uh, understands the problems, and so there were a couple of others at the table with us, and so we spent quite a bit of time talking about what was going on here. But we we talked, uh, and I asked him, I said, well, what what do you think? And then later I asked him about what's going on with the Iran uh, negotiations and the... uh, uh, attempts by the current administration to reinstate the JCPOA, uh, which it relates to the, uh, treaty with Iran that is, that was, uh, negated, canceled by, uh, President Trump, uh, wisely, I believe. And, uh, so he went through a history lesson. And I can't go through all of the details he went through. They're very, very important and, and they, really illustrates something that I have taught for a number of years. And his bottom line was the problem that we have in Washington, D.C. is that almost, probably almost to a man, it's the problem on the left and to a large degree on the right. And that is a failure to understand that we can't export democracy into the Middle East and of course he understands you can't do that from a political viewpoint because uh, and he understands that it's deeply related to their Islamic beliefs that that's un- that is what undergirds everything but I have said since my studies of Islam and I said this in the 80s in relation to other things and I said it in, after nine eleven, is that When you have a religious-slash-philosophical system that is not based on the triune God of Scripture, then there is no place for the value of the individual because in the Trinity of God, there is the unity of God, which is the oneness of God, and also equally you have the multiplicity, the diversity of God, which means that both oneness and, and diversity are equally eternal. That means, and, and our founding fathers understood this, and and going back to to uh, Britain and the history of Christianity in Britain they understood this uh, maybe not in as sophisticated a way as it's been developed in the last 50 or 75 years but that a a mon- strictly monotheistic religion and even though mo- even though let's say church age observant Jews don't believe in the Trinity, the God they believe in is still a triune God. So that that which he reveals in the Old Testament still values the individual, and there has to be this balance between the unity of government and the diversity of the citizenry. And that when you uh, put all of the emphasis on the oneness, and there's no nothing to give you a ba- an intellectual, thoughtful basis for the importance of the individual then what happens, what happens is you end up with the, the only thing you can is an absolute authoritarian system in the body of Christ. Remember we are members of one another. it is one body, but many members. Paul emphasizes that again. Go back and read First Corinthians chapter twelve. And so this is, this is an uh, important political issue because a large number of progressive Republicans and others, uh, I think many of those that President Trump derided as the swamp, are those who do not have a self-conscious view of the understanding of what I just explained. And Islam, because its very presuppositions are consistent with a Unitarian uh, monotheism, cannot, will not ever understand the value of the individual and be able to uh, be democratic. And as long as that is what motivates them, along with the view that they don't have a a robust enough view of evil and the sin nature, that they're going to treat the uh, evil ayatollahs of Iran as if they're honest and as if they can tell the truth and the result of that is we've got leadership that has p- blinded themselves to reality in Washington DC and they they are uh they proliferate in the military they pro- they hyper proliferate in the state department and all through the government and you know unless the house is cleaned uh, we're going to continue to see the same problem. So, uh, but he had lots of personal observations and insights into that, and, it, and it's not just a problem here. He gave an address, spoke to, um, a I I think it was a, a small gathering of, of government officials, and he expressed his views of why democracy cannot be exported into the Islamic or in the Arab countries. And he was just com- derided and dismissed terribly by one of the other main members of his group from Israel who said, well, now you've heard the conservative Israeli view, and that really doesn't work. And so he just dismissed it out of hand with, as if it was just some child's ignorance. And uh, that's, that's what happens on the world stage. Is those who have truth are just derided and ignored and uh, ridiculed. So um, it's important this, and this is the same trend that we see in Israel in the ancient world, is that they they weren't dealing with a unitarian monotheism; they were dealing with the, with a um, they they were dealing with a polytheistic system. And so it, it led to this, this really anarchy, and it happened this way in other countries. And what, what's your only response to the chaos that anarchy brings? Anarchy comes when everybody does right in their own eyes, chaos. And what's the solution to it? It's always going to be tyranny. So one way or the other, you, it, all roads lead back to an autocratic government because the only way you can control the consequences of chaos or anarchy or everybody doing what's right in their own eyes is for a strong leader to come in and shut it down. And so this is, Israel just goes through this again and again. So we're going to look at their confession statement in Judges 10, 10 to 18 tonight. And I want to just summarize what happens in Judges in relation to their recognition of their sin problem. So in Judges 3, 7, we see the first the first statement, and the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and forgot or abandoned the Lord their God, and uh, enslaved themselves to the Baals and the Asherah. And then what happens? Then you have the first judgeship, which is going to be Othniel. And then in Judges 3:12, now the sons of Israel again did evil, and you'll see this word again each time we go through this. Again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So this is the second verse, same as the first. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab. So this is the second cycle of discipline uh, that they go through. Uh, strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And then um, the, he's going to raise up Ehud. Y'all you, you remember when Lefty killed Fatty in the outhouse. And then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And this leads to the oppression by uh, um, by the Canaanites. And um, God will raise up Deborah as a judge. And... Um, then you have, or actually, Shamgar comes first. He's that first parenthesis. Then in one, the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian. Uh, seven years, this comes after the Deborah and Barak cycle, and um, this introduces the Gideon cycle. And then in 10.6, after the Gideon cycle, in our passage, the son, this is the most extensive and detailed explanation of their sin. Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, served the Baals and the Ashtoreths, Ashter, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the sons of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines. Thus they forsook the Lord, or abandoned the Lord, and did not serve him. And then we'll get to Judges thirteen one. That's going to Judges 10.6 is part of the introduction to the Jephthah cycle, and then the last cycle is Samson, the last judge is Samson, Judges 13.1. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Now, we sort of read that, and we go again and again and again and again. But let me see. Over the last two weeks, the Lord has said, and fill in the blank with your name, has again done evil in the sight of the Lord. And then 30 minutes later, and fill in the blank with your name, has again done evil in the sight of the Lord. Because we're sinners, and that's what we do. And we know the solution to the sin is, first of all, the cross, and second, in terms of our daily walk, is to confess sin and to deal with that. So that's what we see in our chapter in uh, Judges uh, 10, uh, 6, down through the end of the chapter is dealing with the confession that comes this time. This is, and this is the most detailed confession that comes uh, from Israel. But God really doesn't take it very seriously. And so we continue our process of looking at this center part, how the leadership has become increasingly paganized. And that's what, you know, we could just take that blueprint and put it on top of the United States because we're down uh, in this lowest, worst cycle around uh, Samson. And then we'll get into some of the really drudge er- uh, drudge areas where there's just nothing good going on. Uh, disobedience leads to discipline. That's the cycle, and then there's going to be deliverance, whether they deserve it or not. That's God's grace. And you know, sometimes when we go through judges, it just seems to be like we're just uh, just trying to walk through the quicksand of evil with snowshoes on. It's slow, it's horrible, but it's important to to learn something. Because at the end of the day, as bad and as disobedient and as evil as Israel has been again and again and again and again, guess what? God will provide deliverance for them, and it ultimately sets the stage for David being the king, and ultimately the line of David brings the Savior. So it's all about grace and how as bad as we are, God still loves and cares for us and provides for us out of his uh, wonderful grace. So we just see these cycles going downhill all the way, and we're down in the Jephthah, the beginnings of the Jephthah cycle. So we looked at these introductory judges last week and uh, pointing out the map here uh, shows where they operated. They are operating... Um, so Tola is operating in this area of the hill country of Samaria. You have uh, Jair, who is up here in this is the Transjordan area. On the northern side is the area uh, also c- referred to as Gilead. The Hebrew, modern Hebrew, is Gilad. Uh, that is the area. We're going to talk a lot about that because it plays a huge role in this particular area. Uh, episode. So it's in this Trans Jordan area that is the focal point of, of what is coming. So we're told we're introduced to the first judge Tola in ten one and two, and then we go to the other subsequent judges. And um, I'm going to skip over a, a couple of things here. So he judge the first judge judges Israel for 23 years. After him, we saw Jair, and Jair is what read that first verse. Jair, the what? The Gileadite. So we see that the writer, as he's pulling these individuals into our perspective, is emphasizing something. He's emphasizing that the scene of the action, he's foreshadowing it uh, through Jair, the Gileadite uh, comes, and he is going to Uh, rule in that area, and then he's going to die and be buried in, in Gilead. So he is, um, he, he is named actually for a, uh, an ancestor who's a son of Manasseh. See, that area across the Jordan is part of the, uh, inheritance for Manasseh. There, it was split. Half the tribe got an inheritance on the cis Jordan side, the other half is in the trans Jordan side. Uh, but notice he's Jair, the Gileadite in ten four talks about the land of Gilead, and then when we get to uh, the end of the Jephthah section, look at what we notice. How many times do you see the word Gilead up there in the last three verses, um, or in these the, these these verses at the at the end? Of, of Jep- the Jephthah cycle, and Jep- now Jephthah gathered together all the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim, and the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim because they said, "You Gileadites are fugitives of Ephraim and the Ephraimites among the Manassites." So this is a civil war between those who are on the uh, 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 the half tribe of Manasseh on the so, what, on the excuse me east side of the Jordan, and the Ephraim. Ephraimites on the uh, Cis-Jordan side, on the west of the Jordan. So this is a, another civil war that breaks, breaks out before we get to the one with the Benjamites later on. Uh, Judges 12.5, the Gileadite seized the fords of the Jordan, and then um, the men of Gilead would say to him, and, and you get to verse 7, and Jephthah judged Israel six years, and what's his name? Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried among the cities of Gilead. So what part of Israel are we talking about? Anybody have a clue? The Holy Spirit has repeated Gilead so many times, it's obvious that that's what we're focused on. So it's this area. So you have Ramoth-Gilead here, which means Ramoth of the territory of Gilead. On the This is all part of the modern kingdom of Jordan, the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan, and you see Gilead written in, from bottom to top, uh, vertically here. Uh, so all of this territory was referred to uh, by the by the name of, of Gilead. So that's the area that that we're talking about. So again, we read about Israel again uh, doing evil in the sight of the Lord, and I want you to notice it. It's, it says as in the previous. References that they served or enslaved themselves to the Baals and the Ashtoreths. But that should be a colon there. And I've changed it on some slides, but maybe not on this one and the next one. That should be a colon. A comma indicates that you're you're continuing a list. Uh, But it's more of a colon because you have as I'll show you in a minute, you have this this storm god. In Syria, it's Hadad. Uh, here, he's called Baal. Uh, in other places, it's has other names, but it's always the storm god, and he's worshipped with uh, uh, live human sacrifices, child sacrifices at, at, at times, and so that's common. And one of the reasons I'm br- pointing that out is because When we get into the Jephthah story and he makes his vow that whatever comes out of his house to greet him when he returns, his daughter runs out to greet him. And the text just says, and so uh, he did to her what he vowed. And there's a lot of evangelicals who get real squeamish because Jephthah's mentioned as a hero of the faith over in Hebrews 11. They go, oh, he couldn't have killed her. He couldn't have sacrificed her. But the whole point of judges is that these leaders are so confused and mixed up and they've absorbed so, so much paganism that in many ways they act no differently than the uh, Canaanites around them. And we have the same problem in our country. Anybody who thinks that you're going to be able to go vote in this, in this country, in this civilization for somebody who looks like a lily white Christian of 150 years ago, you're looking for something that really probably doesn't exist, not in politics. Um, you know, that we, God chose these leaders. Oh, you mean God did not choose these leaders according to the standards for leadership that he revealed to Moses? That's right. God chose these men because they were going to be able to uh, do exactly what he intended for them to do. And because they trusted him at a particular point in time, then they are praised for that because they trusted God at that point in time. Uh, and that's mentioned. That's what's mentioned in Hebrews. So it's a colon, because these gods and goddesses, uh, the Baalim and Astro, the fertility religions, had different names in different countries, but they were basically the same entity. So you have the colon, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, that's over in uh, Phoenicia area on the Mediterranean coast, the gods of Moab, that's south. Moab is to the southeast of the Dead Sea, the area around uh, Petra. The gods of the people of Ammon, uh, Am- Ammon today is the capital of Jordan. So the center part of what is today Jordan is the area of the Ammonites. The gods of the Philistines, now we shift to the southeast, down around Gaza again. Uh, along the Mediterranean, and they forsook the Lord, they abandoned the Lord and did not serve him. And what's the response? And the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the sons of Ammon. So this is sort of foreshadowing because Jephthah is going to deal with the Ammonites in Judges chapter uh, 11, And 12, and Samson in 13 through 16 is going to deal with the Philistines. So we have um, this emphasis on the uh, children of Israel. Uh, enslaving themselves basically to the Baals and the astro, their their the evil is the evil of idolatry, and all sin ultimately goes back to idolatry. You're you're worshiping the creature rather than the Creator, and uh, so they abandon the Lord and they don't uh, they don't serve Him. So you're either serving the Lord or you're serving some creature. That's the, those are the options that Paul has in Romans chapter one they either they you either uh worship the creature or you or excuse me you either worship the creator or you worship the something in the creation whether it is animate or inanimate um okay judges 10:6 we get to um we we've already read through this you have not list of these different nations. You have the gods of Syria and Sidon, Moab and Ammon, and the Philistines. So there are five that are mentioned there. What binds them together is that, uh, I put in an m-dash in here, colon or m-dash punctuation is basically the same thing, and these these five the gods of these five nations are the ones that entrap the the Israelites, and then this goes back though to Deuteronomy seven one, where as uh, where Moses is reviewing uh, God's marching orders for when they go into the promised land in the land of Canaan. So the land of Canaan is really named for Canaan, who's the grandson of Noah. And some of his descendants, all of these different ethnic groups, settled there. But these different groups are uh, are just loosely called Canaanites because they live in that geographical area. So you have the Hittites. You had Hittites that lived there, but mostly the Hittite Empire is up in what we refer to as Turkey today. And you have the Girgashites and the Amorites, We'll talk about the Amorites later there to the northeast stretching all the way back uh, through Syria over into what, we would, what would be north, uh, northern Iraq today. You have the Canaanites and Perizzites and Hivites and Jebusites and Stalactites and Stalagmites. And every time people look, their eyes glaze over. But these, these are important groups. The Jebusites had uh, control of uh, the city of Salem or Jerusalem, which David will finally conquer and take away from the Jebusites later on. And Perizzites and Hivites were just other ethnic groups that all lived within the land that God promised to Abraham. So it just reminds us of the evil that goes on that's been mentioned, the, the cycle of evil and idolatry that's explained. We went through this last week in Judges 2.11, and that process just just goes on and on. They forsake the Lord. They abandon the Lord. And uh, again and again, you just have this same pattern. We, we all have patterns of sin, and you may not have recognized your patterns, but they're redundant And we tend to do the same things over and over again, and I know I didn't want to expose you too much on that. So we talked about that last time, and then we went to Joshua 24, and Joshua 24, uh, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel and the elders of Israel, and he challenged them, and uh, he challenges them to make a choice, because that's the ultimate issue, is going to be volition. Are you going to choose to serve God, or are you going to church, uh, choose to serve some aspect of the creation, whether it's yourself, or whether it is a false God or idol of human imagination, or whatever it is. And so he makes his challenge that if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river, that's referring to the Euphrates, or the gods of the Amorites. We're going to look at who those are in just a minute, the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. So here he's associating the land of Canaan with the Amorites, who were a large group of people uh, earlier, several hundred years earlier, called the Amuru, and, uh, he said, and so they influence all of these different ethnic Canaanite groups. And he, then he concludes, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people answer, and I believe they are answering some, it's like a pep rally, and they answer somewhat uh, emotionally. They are motivated, but they can't carry it through, and that's what happens in the first chapter of Judges as we we studied And they say, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods, and that's exactly what they do. So this term Amorite, not to be confused with Ammonite. See, those two words sounds very similar. And so when we read these terms, we say, I don't know who they are. That's why you always need to have a good Bible dictionary uh, at hand so that you can look things up when you're reading your Bible. Amorite derives from a term that means Westerners. Well, if they're western and they're in the area of uh, northern Canaan, Syria, going across to um, going across. See, here's the map here. So they're in this area. They're going from northern Canaan up across this way, up across Syria and over into northern Iraq. Uh, that's west of where? What's the big city over there? Babylon. Always remember this, from the beginnings in Genesis with the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 until you get to the book of Revelation, Jerusalem's the city of God. That's God's city, whether they're observing it or not. And Babylon is the representative of satanic evil, and that conflict is always there. So, they are west of Babylon in this, this area. So, there's just a hint there that to, to bring our attention down into that particular area. So, the Amorites are one of the many ethnic groups that were called uh, Canaanites. Their chief deity is Dagon. Where have we heard about Dagon before? In Samuel. In First Samuel, the episode when the Ark of the Covenant has been captured by the Philistines and they take the Ark of the Covenant into the temple of Dagon, the next morning they go in and Dagon is bowing down before the before Yahweh's Ark of the Covenant, his throne. And uh, then the ne- they set Dagon back up and the next day they come back and Dagon's down again uh, in a prostate, prostrate position and he is... Uh, has his hands and his feet cut off, so they can't stand him back up again, showing that these false gods, who really are empowered at, by, by demons, according to Deuteronomy, that uh, that's who their chief god is, uh, Dagon, and uh, he kind of, he, and he's the chief deity. And then there's another god. The Hurrian people were another one of these ethnic groups in the area. And their god Teshep, who's known as Martu, later he's called Marduk, which is Marduk is the chief god of Babylon. So you see, all these, it's important sometimes to just look at these things because you're going to see certain trends and certain connections that, um, that are not normally uh, brought out. So they, um, the god Amuru of the Amorites, for whom they're named, is a storm god like Baal. And Baal is going to be related to Chemosh and to uh, some of the other gods that are worshipped with uh, with uh, child sacrifices. So all of these things are uh, come together. And it's important to understand this because, as I said earlier, um, you have a problem with, with evangelicals who don't want to believe that Jephthah uh, could... Oh, how could he have sacrificed his daughter? well, because he was thinking more like a pagan uh, he grew up, he was a child of a concubine he's an illegitimate child and he grows up with a bunch of uh, of uh, uh, brigands and uh, sand pirates out east of uh, Israel. Where is he going to get anything related to the word he He probably learned a little enough to be saved and believe in the promise of God, or god wouldn 't have raised him up, but he doesn 't know any other real content and so he is out there in the uh, wilderness out here on the over in Jordan and uh, east of there uh, before he comes, and he is the one, God, it does say God raised him up, he sort of asserts himself into the position. So that's, that's where he's going to come. Now, just to give you a little rundown on some of these other gods and goddesses, uh, th- this is the god of the Ammonites. So Amuru is the god of the Amorites, Milcom is the idol of the Ammonites. it's interesting. Remember, in your Semitic languages, you didn't have vowels. So what are the main consonants? M-L-K. No, it's not Martin Luther King, no. It's M-L-K. Melek is the Hebrew word for king. So it's a spin-off, a twisted application of that word. He's He's the chief idol for the Ammonites. And, um, and he's related to another God who shows up with the Moabites named Moloch. What are those consonants? MLK again. Okay. So that, that that same thing kind of shows up. This is, this is the real king. And of course, they're personifications of Satan ultimately. But the Ammonites. Now, this is the next question. Who are the Ammonites? Where'd they come from? This is that torrid chapter in uh, in Genesis following the events of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in Judges 19. You have your main characters are the two angels who came with God to bring judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham negotiates with God to go in and to, if there's one righteous man, God's going to save him. And so righteous Lot, as Peter calls him in 2 Peter 2, righteous Lot whose soul was vexed by all of the uh, all of the uh, sexual perversion and homosexuality that was going on in, in Sodom. And the angels come and say, okay, we're, God's going to judge everything, and you've got to get out. So he says, well, I, I want my daughters and their husbands to come with me. And the angel says, okay. So they get them, and the husbands say, no, we're not going to leave. But the daughters are going to leave with Lot. His wife is going to leave with Lot, but she's, they're told not to look back, but she disobeys and looks back, looks back, and she, so she's turned into the, the original Morton's Pillar of Salt. And we have, uh, Lot getting away. He didn't want to get too far away. I mean, he is, he is just torn between sin and and righteousness. He's righteous lot not because he lives righteously, but because he had also believed the promise of God like Abraham, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So he is positionally righteous, even though he is experientially uh, compromised. So. What happens is he goes off, and he's just upset. His wife has died. His daughters are upset because they've lost their husbands, so they're going to die die childless, which is one of the worst things that can happen. So they decide to get Daddy drunk and then have sex with him. And so they got Lot drunk, and they seduced him one one night, the other the next night, and they each got pregnant, and one of them had a son she named Ammon, And the other one had a son she named Moab. So Ammon and Moab are descendants. The the tribes are descendants from Lot, who is Abraham's nephew. So they're Semitic as well. So it's all in the family. Just one big happy family. And it just the sin, it just goes everywhere. So the Ammonites are going to go over to... um, Let me go back to the map here. See, the Ammonites are going to get... um, Excuse me, the, Moab, the Ammonites are going to get the northern area in Jordan, and then the next group down are the Moabites. They're in the middle, and then um, Edom gets, will eventually get the lower part of, of uh, Jordan. So that's, they cover the, the territory of, of the Transjordan. Now, what's interesting is what happens like with Milcom. Solomon is going to introduce the worship of Milcom into Israel, and he builds a high place for the worship of Milcom in 1 Kings 11.5. And so Milcom will continually be a trap for the Israelites. And uh, Josiah will finally destroy the high places that, uh, that Solomon built. Where did he build them? He built them across the Kidron Valley on Mount of Olives, which picked up the nickname the Mount of Corruption. Okay? It's not the Mount of Evil Council. Those of you who've been to Israel know that if you're standing on the southern steps of the temple, you can look directly to your left, 90 degrees, and that's... You're looking south, and that's the Mount of Olives. That was the Mount of Corruption. But if you look due... um, due south, you're going to see things go up to kind of a ridge and there's a building on the top that stands out in in profile and it's flying a flag that's kind of blue and white. You can barely make it out. And that's the UN building. But it's built on a very fascinating site. It's built on the Mount of of Evil Council. Because that is where... Solomon, uh, met with his advisors who counseled him, or excuse me, not Solomon, but, but, uh, Rehoboam met with his counselors, and counseled him to increase the taxation, increase the tax burden on the people, and cause a disruption. But it's ironic that the Mount of Evil Council is where, uh, the UN decided to put their building. It's interesting how God, uh, exposes evil even uses their ambitions against them. So anyway, then we have Chemosh, who is, uh, his name means the destroyer, the subduer. He's the fish god like Dagon, so he's just another manifestation of Dagon. and uh, But he's worshipped by human sacrifices. So each of these religions, you have the uh, Milcom, Chemosh, and Malak, are all the national religions of different groups. But they're all inspired by Satan to attack the God of Israel and destroy God's God's people. Second Kings 1717 17 said then they they referring to the Israelites made their sons and their daughters pass through the fire. And so what we see is that uh, in these religions there is child sacrifice, and they are uh, putting out there. Uh, the statues would have this area uh, in this idol where they built a huge fire. It's like a furnace uh, that was shaped in the shape of this god, and his arms are out, and they would literally sacrifice, immolate, burn alive their, their children. Now, what was interesting was uh, when I was in seminary, I wrote my master's thesis on Jephthah's vow, and uh I argued a strong case at that time. There were few things published by scholars who took the sacrifice view that that 's what literally what happened most evangelicals were squeamish about it but since then it's like almost every major commentary i've read on judges that 's come out since then takes the sacrifice view, and the archaeology has discovered more and more that 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 it wasn 't just at the time of Solomon and later that there was child sacrifice. It goes all the way back uh, to the canaanites and it was it was the uh, it was accepted in the culture so th- i 'm telling you all of this so that it lays the groundwork for when we get to what to jephthah 's vow and what he did. You see that this is part of the pagan culture. And just as today we have many, many Christians who are influenced by the culture and think more like a woke, postmodern, um, un-American, in my opinion. And, um, just then you have people who were not, not true Israelites. And they rejected everything in the Mosaic Law and they thought like a Canaanite and acted and practiced everything like a Canaanite. And the result is that God's anger was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the people of Ammon. Now, I want to talk just briefly about this phrase, the anger of the Lord, because people get the idea because this is an anthropopathism. You know, we have two words that sound similar. One is anthropomorphism, morph meaning form, and anthropopathism from pathos, meaning emotion, uh, suffering. Just it's the same thing you have in empathy. The P-A-T-H. Empathy, sympathy. Uh, that that is a, a word that deals deals with emotion. So there's always been a struggle in Christianity dealing with a doctrine called the impassibility of God. And what that means is God really within himself touched emotionally because that would change God. That's part of the argument. And, um, and does God have passions? That's the P-A-S-S in the word impassibility. So that is, uh, where that comes from. Does God have passions? Does he have emotion? And that's a big debated thing, and I, I believe that most of these phrases are, um, uh, most of these phrases are figures of speech, because it helps us to understand things about God's character, uh, in a way that, that we may not understand in, in some other way. And that's the purpose of both anthropomorphisms and anthropopathisms. An anthropomorphism is a figure of speech that compares some attribute of God to a physical feature in the human body, such as the eyes of God go to and fro throughout the whole earth looking for a man uh, who fears him. Uh, Does God have eyes like humans have eyes? No. Uh, You have other phrases that refer to the ears of God. You also have an idiom that refers to God's nose. Does God have eyes? No. Does God have ears? No. Does God have a nose? No. Now, that's really important. You have to follow what I'm saying here. So this phrase, anger of the Lord in the Hebrew, is made up of two words. Uh, it's made up, here are the two words here. It's from the verb kara, vayakar, in a, in a cow imperfect, and af, which is the word for nose. Does God have a nose? No. So the word kara refers to, literally, it's a word for burning, but it is applied figuratively to your face is burning. When you get mad, the blood goes into your face, your nose turns red. Okay, so that's the background for this, this figure of speech. And God is, uh, so does God have a literal nose? No. So this is an anthropomorphism, excuse me, it's an anthropopathism based on an anthropomorphism. So about 20 years ago, 25, 23, 24 years ago, uh, somebody whose name I won't mention published an article in a Chafer journal arguing that God had emotion. And I called him up because I could do this. And I said, you it totally ignored the whole fact that this this phrase, the God's nose burns, is an anthropopathism based on an anthropomorphism. It's all a figure of speech, and you just didn't deal with it at all. Well, he was a little miffed at that. Um, we always remained good friends. So uh, that was. Um, but that's, that's the problem is you get into some of this stuff and it's kind of difficult to work your way through, through these figures of speech. But even words in the, in the Greek and the New Testament, when you look at the mercies of God or the compassion of God, it's splanknoi, which means the kidneys of God, the innards of God, because where, where do you feel emotions? You feel you know you, uh, suddenly you, you're told that somebody close to you has died. You feel it in your gut, right? And so the Hebrews were very con- uh, concrete about how they describe uh, emotions. So they related them to, to physical things. So my point is that God's anger anger is something that comes and goes. But God in His omniscience always knew that 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 the Israelites. We're going to disobey him. He's not taken by surprise. He doesn't say, you did what? And get all upset and everything because he just learned about how stupid they were and that they're rebelling again because he's always known that. So it's simply an idiom for the justice of God being brought harshly upon somebody. Just as we use a phrase such as, well, uh, they went to court and the judge threw the book at him. Well, the judge probably did not pick up a book and throw it at anybody. It is just a figure of speech that he is being judged according to the full weight of the law, unless he shows up in one of the Democrat-controlled courthouses in Harris County. So this is what we see here. It's a figure of speech. The anger of the Lord was hot against Israel and the consequence is, he's going to do, exa- see, it's not something that just a product, God has a temper tantrum and he's mad. It goes back to the Mosaic Law. Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28 spells this out that when you do this, I will do this and I will bring you under foreign domination, and you'll be defeated military and come under the control of these foreign powers. And so God is being very fair. He says, let's look at the law. The law says you're going to rebel against me. What's the penalty? Oh, the penalty is five different stages of discipline. And so now it's time for us to bring uh, the Philistines and the Ammonites in, and they are going to uh, bring punishment to you. And so, what ha- the way this is described in verse eight is, and they—that is, the Philistines and the Ammonites—afflicted and crushed the sons of Israel that year. For eighteen years, they afflicted all the sons of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in Gilead, in the land of the Amorites. So, this is the area that's focusing on what's happening in the in the no- northeast. The King James translates it, New King James translates it, they harassed and oppressed. Let me tell you, it's a lot more than harassing and oppressing. Uh, you have these two words. It, it, they're, they're sort of onomatopoeic words. That means they kind of sound like what they're doing, the, and they have a little rhyme to them. The first is Raats, The second is r'atzatz. Raats and r'atzatz. And so, what the the writers emphasizing here is that they are going to be uh, seriously, uh, seriously attacked and restricted and crushed. The word for afflict is the the, uh, the first word, and it has that idea of being um, uh, crammed or constricted or something of that nature, and then. Uh, it has also the idea of being, the, the second word has the idea of being uh, shattered or or crushed. And the first word occurs in Exodus 15.6. The second one occurs earlier in Judges 9.53, uh, where it has the, the idea of that millstone that fell on Abimelech's head and crushed it. So that gives you a nice vivid imagery of what, God is talking about here is that they are physically brutalized in these 18 years of control by the Amorites. Verse 9 says, the sons of Ammon crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim, so that all of Israel is greatly distressed. It's not just those who are in Gilead across the Jordan, but the Ammonites are continuing to evade into the main Uh, the main areas as well. Um, Let me build this little timeline here. Oh, the order just got all blown up. So uh, this brings us to the time of of Jephthah. So Jephthah's dates are roughly 1150 to 1100. Now, around 1400 B.C. is when uh, the conquest took place, or the initial parts of the conquest probably ended, and then the mopping up from about 1400 to 1350. So he's born about 200 years after that, and he lives for about 50 years to 1100. 1050 is roughly uh, when Saul begins to reign. So Saul's going to be alive, uh, during part of this time as as a child. He's going to be born during Jephthah's reign. So Jephthah's born at 1150. Sa- uh, Samson's born in 1123. So uh, he's, he's overlaps Jephthah. And he's going to go to 1084. So he's killed 16 years after Jephthah dies. Samuel uh, is going to be born in 1115. So he overlaps Jephthah and Samson as well. And he's going to die in 1020. So you have the Ammonite oppression here from 1124 to 1106, and then um, I'm going to check that date again because that if Jephthah dies at 1100, all these dates are debated. Uh, You have the Ammonite oppression and overlapping at the Philistine oppression. And, uh, the Battle of a- Aphex. So this sort of gives you a little bit of a, of a timeline. And then Saul comes along from 1075 to 1011. So Judges 1010, the children of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you because we have both forsaken our God, our God. Notice they make it personal. We've forsaken our God and served the Baals. So they admit it. But let's see what God does. So the Lord said to the children of Israel, Did I not deliver you? Notice how God asks a lot of questions. He doesn't just state something. He asks them questions because he wants them to engage their minds and think through uh, the, the answer. So the Lord said to the children of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the people of Ammon and from the Philistines? Also, the Sidonians and Amalekites and Mayonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I delivered you from from their hand. Now, everybody that I mentioned, except for the last one, is somebody you 're familiar with, and nobody seems to really know who the uh, mayonites are it 's a, it's a word that just cro- crops up the Septuagint translated it as Midianites. Uh, because of what we see with, with previously with uh, Gideon, but there's no textual basis for that. Um, it, it seems uh, best to associate them with the Midianites, but there's no basis for really, really understanding that at all. So it's just kind of an anomaly. And verse 12, so in this section, he just describes all the ways in which God has been faithful, delivering Israel, providing for them. And then God says, yet you've abandoned me and served other gods. Therefore, I will deliver you no more. So just because you confessed, it's not some magic bullet, that magic, you know, formula that if you say it, you won't suffer consequences. When we confess sin, God's got three responses. One is he's going to forgive us and remove the consequences and in grace. And he does that probably about 95% of the time if truth were known. We don't get what we deserve. The other thing is, he is going to um, forgive us and he is going to bring uh, some consequences. He's just going to let us reap what we sowed. We're just going to reap the natural consequences of our sin. And then a third response is he's not only going to uh, forgive us, but then he's going to intensify the consequences of our sin. That's what happened with David after his sin with Bathsheba. So he says, you've forsaken me and served me. I'm not going to deliver you anymore. You're going to have to go through some discipline. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in your time of distress. See how sarcastic God is. Some people don't realize God has a great sense of humor, and he is really sarcastic at times. Verse 15, And the children of Israel said to the Lord, We've sinned. Do to us what seems best to you. Only deliver us this day, we pray." And so what happens then? They truly seem to repent. Repent doesn't mean to feel sorry for your sins or have remorse. That's always a problem. You look up repent in the dictionary, and it'll say remorse. But that's not what it means in Scripture. It means to change your mind, which means which will impact your behavior. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And his soul, that is God's soul, could no longer endure the misery of Israel. So this is just another anthropopathism uh, to indicate, you know, God turned away from his harsh discipline. But what happens? Then the people of Ammon gather together and encamped in Gilead. So God's going to allow the Ammonites to invade. The Ammonites gather together, encamp in Gilead, and the children of Israel assemble and encamp in Mizpah. So there's going to be a war. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, say to one another, who's the man who will begin the fight against the people of Ammon? Who's going to lead us? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of, of Gilead. So at this point, they don't have a leader. They've just come together because they are tired of the oppression of the Ammonites, and they want God to do something, but they don't know how or who the leader is going to be. And that's what we'll get into when I get back from Africa in three weeks. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and be reminded of your grace and your goodness. And, Father, we just pray that we would take these messages to heart, that we live in a time of the judges. We live in a time where there is... Uh, rebellion against you, moral relativism on every hand, and uh, even among the vast majority of Christians. And, Father, we know that you are gracious and kind, and we pray that there might be a change that would take place. But we know you're not going to violate the volition of people. But we pray that you would raise up those who are godly, that could lead and direct us, that we might not have chaos, not have tyranny, but that we might be restored to our the vision of our founding fathers. But if not, we pray that you would give us the grace, the stamina, the spiritual strength to endure whatever comes. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.